0: Alexander Hamilton, my name is Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> oh wait, wrong song. Everybody's heard that song because it introduces Lin-Manuel as the central character of the musical Alexander Hamilton. Or wait, no, sorry, just Hamilton. But the juicy song is Aaron Burr, sir. That's a song where Hamilton is introduced to his foil. The song tees up the central conflict of the musical. And i Like to sing the lines for you, but you know, I don't want to come across as a show off by doing it better than Leslie Odom Jr., so I'll just read them to you. Burr says to Hamilton, Let me offer you some free advice. Talk less, smile more. Don't let them know what you're against or what you're for. Later in the show, when Hamilton asks Burr to back the Constitution, he replies, What if you're backing the wrong horse? Now, Burr is jealous of Hamilton for getting to be, as he puts it, in the room where it happens. But from the beginning of their relationship, Hamilton has been calling out Burr for his tragic flaw. Burr, the revolution's imminent. What do you stall for? If you stand for nothing, Burr, what'll you fall for? As an Enneagram 3, Wing 2, my existence is the definition of their tension. Hamilton is willing to achieve at all costs, and Burr wants to please everyone. Not healthy, but at least for me, relatable. I want to explore that tension today, but I don't want to take this towards an advocacy for picking sides. I want to drill deeper. I want to talk about strong convictions loosely held. I want to embrace complexity, acknowledge the temptation to simplify and vilify. I want to be the kind of person who takes a stance not a side. The world is gray, not because I'm depressed, but because most things exist between black and white, not one side or the other. I'm Josiah Holland, born in 1996, and the last four of my social security number are none your business. This podcast is my attempt to merge humor, philosophy, and whatever interesting things I encounter along the way. I'm interested in the Aaron Burr phenomenon because when I talk to individuals, I find that most people are like Aaron Burr. They're not sure where they stand because to take a stand would potentially cause offense and risk intellectual isolation. It's the whole, you can talk about anything, just not politics, religion, or money idea. When I examine this tendency within myself, I realize that part of my hesitancy comes from my fear of being found incapable of defending my position. It's about not looking stupid as much as it is about not offending. And then you've got your loud voices on social media. I think they also hate looking stupid, but they've taken a stance, so by gosh, they're going to defend it. The best defense is a strong offense, right? Sling mud harder than the other side and try to win the vote for the least ugly. Convince your constituents or friends that your opposition hates something core to your followers identity and with their identity under threat, they'll fall in line. It's hard to hate someone over a disagreement, but it's easy to seek their detriment when you believe they seek yours. We live in a world where those on the fringes leverage shame, fear, and anger to move those in the middle towards picking a side. And it's in this kind of dynamic that the revelation of facts fails to produce productive discourse. Rather, Facts are used to reinforce pre-existing perspectives through creative interpretation. The most recent example I can think of is Trump's mugshot. The left pasted this image everywhere as confirmation of their claims that Trump is a criminal. Democracy may be saved should the courts rule that no one, not even a former president, is above the law. Or at least that, that that's their point of view. Meanwhile, at DonaldTrumpStore.com, you can find t-shirts with his mugshot accompanied by the words, never surrender. This isn't Trump's attempt to be ironic, but it's his tribe painting the image as evidence that the intensity of persecution Donald Trump is willing to endure um, is real, and he's not giving into it. They say he's under attack, but he's still fighting, and for his followers, this fight For his self-preservation isn't egotistical, they see it as representative of a larger culture war, and he's their warrior. The easiest story to tell is one of good versus evil, black and white, yin and yang. People don't have time for nuance, complicated doesn't make for good clickbait, and party lines are drawn and political platforms defined in response to their opposition, Church denomination split, Judaism has its streams, Islam has its school, Buddhism and Hinduism have their sects. Gallup claims that 38% of Americans identify as socially conservative, 29% as liberal, 31% as moderate, and of those with the, within the socially conservative and liberal camps, I don't think everyone views the other camp with vitriol. However, the further left or right you are, the more likely it seems that you will have dehumanized and demonized the other side. My friends on the far left seem convinced beyond a doubt that right-wing politicians are essentially a subclass of human with nothing but evil and selfishness in their hearts. These friends generally speak of right-wing voters as bigots who are incapable of critical thinking. Meanwhile, my friends on the far right worry that far left politicians are like pied pipers selling cancer-causing candy. They perceive leftist politicians as a threat to liberty, capitalism, unborn babies, the practice of Christianity, and ultimately their way of life, even if they themselves aren't particularly religious. They perceive left-wing voters as either deluded, rich, white elitists, or urban poor black people who prefer a handout to a hand up. From where I stand, I find a lot of the critiques from both sides to be unfair characterizations of reality. At the same time, I know people on both sides who are convinced that they're completely correct about the other side's flaws, while refusing to even hear out what the other side has to say in critique of their position. Please don't hear this as me claiming to be completely rational and immune to blind spots. I think it all actually starts to make a lot of sense with some help from Jonathan Haidt. This episode is brought to you by Royal Halal Foods. Though this company doesn't sell food yet, my friend Morteza is starting up an Afghan restaurant in Dallas. And when he launches, I wanna see him overwhelmed with customers. Considering that this is the biggest podcast on the internet and potentially the best thing since sliced bread, what better platform could we use to publicize his business? So yeah, he's not in operation yet, but if you're business savvy and wanna help me help him with a business plan, Please reach out because I know nothing about the restaurant industry. And maybe you'll get a free meal out of it with the code just wishing. <laughs> See what I did there? Now, back to our regular programming. Okay, so I said before we broke for that commercial, um, Jonathan Haight. I don't actually know how to say his last name, maybe it's Haight. Um We'll, we'll go with that. Jonathan Haidt starts out his book, The Righteous Mind, though, with this metaphor of a rider and an elephant. The elephant represents our emotions and intuitive processes, which are powerful, automatic, and often govern our reactions to the world around us. The writer, on the other hand, symbolizes conscious, analytical, rational, uh, that part of our mind. So while the writer likes to think that they're in control, dictating the actions, Uh, based on logic and reasoned thinking. In reality, the elephant goes where it wants most of the time. It's our emotional, intuitive side, and it has a more substantial influence over our actions and decisions than we might realize. To truly persuade someone or change their mind, whoever's trying to do that changing needs to appeal to the other person's elephant, to appeal to their emotional and intuitive aspects of psychology. You can't just present logical arguments, which address only the writer. You need to address the elephant, the the elephant in the room. And so I bring this up because there is no point in talking about the division in our world without offering some thoughts on how we might navigate it. So of course, the, the natural question is, how do we talk to elephants? Well, let's start with what the elephant cares about. Height suggests that we all have innate but culturally shaped moral intuitions based on six foundational pillars. So he calls these moral foundations or moral pillars. The first is built around care and an aversion to harm. So care, harm. The second is fairness or an aversion to cheating. Fairness, cheating. And third is loyalty and an aversion to betrayal. Fourth is authority, subversion, fifth is sanctity, degradation. And then sometimes he throws in a a sixth. This one is, I guess, a little bit less uh, maybe researched or firm uh, as a pillar, but liberty and oppression. So uh, yeah, six pillars. And some people's elephants are motivated by or most motivated by two or three of these pillars. And It's worth taking a second to reflect on these pillars and consider what yours might be. I'll read them again. Care and harm, fairness and cheating, loyalty and betrayal, authority and subversion, sanctity and degradation, liberty and oppression. So let's apply these pillars to the context of several contentious topics. We'll start off first with abortion. The sanctity degradation pillar is a major factor for those who oppose abortion on religious grounds. These people see life as sacred. On the other side, people advocating for a woman's right to choose may be focusing on the Care Harm Foundation, emphasizing the potential suffering that an unwanted pregnancy can cause. Of course, a pro-life advocate may respond to this by saying that, well, I'm motivated by my care for the unborn child. Fine, the point still stands that these pillars give us a way to talk about moral motivation. When someone's elephant isn't morally motivated in the same way as your elephant, it's easy to paint that person out as immoral. How can you dismiss the sanctity of life? You must be amoral. Or, how can you advocate for policies that totally dismiss the potential suffering of an unwanted pregnancy or that an unwanted pregnancy may cause for a mother and future child? Should they both even survive the birth in the first place? So, okay, I think I've made my point with abortion. Let's move to the next hot topic. Vaccination and religious exemptions. If we uh, look at Heights care, harm, and liberty oppression pillars here, uh, we'll see that some might oppose mandatory vaccinations based on the liberty and oppression pillar. They argue for individual freedom of choice. Others may support vaccinations strongly based on the care-harm pillar. They believe that vaccinations protect the community at large from harm. Recognizing these different moral approaches to the issue creates space for us to have a nuanced conversation about vaccinations, public health, and the moral foundations each of us is bringing to the conversation. We can do this with climate change and stewardship. Activists may use care-harm to emphasize the harm that climate change poses to people, especially vulnerable populations, and the responsibility to care for others by mitigating these harms. Their opposition may feel that too much care is being given to future generations at the expense of economic stability and growth for the current generation. Those opposed to action may feel that strict regulations unfairly hinder economic growth. At the same time, activists may defer to the consensus of the scientific community and the international organizations advocating for climate action. They're respecting the authority on the matter. And then those opposed to action reject these same authorities, viewing these authorities as subversive forces that are really overstepping their bounds and imposing unwanted changes on society, potentially for their own gain. And so activists motivated by the Sanctity Degradation Foundation might view stewardship of the earth as a sacred duty bestowed by God. On the other side, some people may feel that the sanctity of human innovation and industry is being degraded by portraying innovation and industry as harmful and destructive. So I really went overboard there with uh, climate change. But I'm just trying to pull in how each of these moral foundations can contribute to a conversation about what's really motivating somebody's stance or position on the topic. And then as a last example, universal health care. Some people see universal health care as a matter of fairness and social justice, arguing that everyone should have equal access to Medicare, or not Medicare, but medical care. Um, other people might oppose it because they believe it's unfair for them to pay for someone else's health care. Then, of course, there's an entire discourse to be had around what's broken in our current health care system and what kinds of changes are even feasible to propose. So if at Thanksgiving this year, you find your family suddenly sprinting towards hurt feelings and broken relationships by means of a political shouting match, my first recommendation is to tackle Uncle Freddy and give him a wedgie. No one will expect it. Everyone knows Uncle Freddy doesn't have a dog in the fight, so if you clearly couldn't have been tackling him for political reasons, then they're going to be so shocked by a grown person giving another grown person a wedgie that it should totally divert attention away from the debate, even if it makes things awkward. Now, if you don't have an Uncle Freddie to tackle, then my recommendation would be to enter the conversation with questions that help those who have picked sides start to recognize why they've even picked the side they've chosen. Though there's about 0% chance that anyone in that room is going to change their opinion, the best case scenario would be that everyone in the room can acknowledge and respect the moral foundation upon which the others are basing their arguments. Alright, so at this point we've talked about the temptation to play burr and sit out controversy. We've also explored the ways we can be manipulated by opposing sides of the debate to pick a side and demonize the opposing viewpoint. I've offered Heights' theory of moral foundations as the means by which we can work to understand and respect the complexity of debatable topics. Next, I want to consider what in our current cultural moment in history is fanning the flames of tribalism and the oversimplification of choices and stances. How often do you see sound bits and headlines that capture the full story? It's not their fault necessarily, right? Since the purpose of a headline is to grab your attention, not communicate comprehensive understanding. I think we all agree to that on the front end, and yet we allow ourselves to read headlines as if their purpose was to communicate the full story, and we dismiss their inherent clickbait nature when we're scrolling. If the title triggers an emotional reaction from the elephant within us, we're unwittingly allowing a pre-existing idea we have about the nature of the world to be reinforced when we choose not to critically examine the claim being made. Sure, some of this has to do with echo chambers created by social media algorithms, but each of us opts into these digital worlds, and all of us live in the real world too, so we need to take responsibility for the echo chambers we might find ourselves in. Haidt also wrote a book, in addition to The Righteous Mind, called The Coddling of the American Mind, in which he and his co-author challenged three ideas. First idea is, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. They call this the untruth of fragility. The second idea is always trust your feelings. They call this the untruth of emotional reasoning. Third is the idea that life is a battle between good people and evil people, or the untruth of us versus them. They argue that these ideas undermine resilience, emotional stability, critical thinking. They believe and make a strong case to suggest that the hyper-focus on avoiding adversity actually increases anxiety, depression, polarization. And I think the perfect metaphor to describe this idea is actually a really interesting experiment, a Biosphere 2 experiment conducted in Arizona for space research. They built this dome, and grew trees in it and the trees would collapse before reaching full maturity and the reason is the same reason why if you have an indoor fiddle fig you've probably been told to give it a little shake from time to time trees need the stress of the wind in order to grow strong enough to support their own weight without that stress they don't properly develop if we want to possess ideas and convictions worth having then we have to engage those who hold ideas different from our own. We have to practice active listening. Grasping the nuance of a situation requires us to listen. Really listen to what others are saying. This includes withholding judgment, trying to understand the underlying values and concerns of the other person. We have to educate ourselves. Before forming an opinion, we should research multiple perspectives. We should invite new information. Especially when it challenges our preconceptions. If you're unable to articulate the best counterargument against your position, there's no need for shame. Like, what I'm saying here is we don't have to fully understand something to have a position. But if you don't understand the counterarguments, there's obviously an opportunity to deepen your understanding on the topic. We'd also benefit from practicing mindfulness. How long does it take to pause to consider our own cognitive biases and how they may be clouding our reasoning? This could be as simple as noticing your emotional reactions when discussing a hot button issue and asking yourself why you feel that way. Listening, educating ourselves, and practicing mindfulness are all individual practices. If we want to create a culture, not just engage in it, then there's more we can do. We can facilitate nuanced conversations. What might it look like to be the person who introduces complexity into discussions, whether online or in person? What would it look like to ask probing questions that require thoughtful answers or present aspects of an issue that others might not have considered? This goes back to the Thanksgiving advice I gave earlier. We can disrupt echo chambers when we make a conscious effort to interact with people who have different opinions Do we cross-pollinate our circles by inviting those same people into the spheres of our lives where people may not hold those same views? Or do we, we at least bring those ideas back with us into those spaces where their views would otherwise go unvoiced? One of my friends recently noticed that most of his friends, if not all of them, were Christians. And he's been working to change that. He recently signed up for a volleyball league to make new friends. And I think his choice is a great example of this idea lived out. Lastly, we can challenge demonization. When you notice someone stereotyping or demonizing a group of people, even if you agree with the person making the argument, how might you gently challenge them to consider the complexity of the issue? Before jumping to facts and logic, Remember to practice empathy and appeal to shared values. On a civic level, there are a few more ideas that come to mind. We can vote with our wallets and attention. Let's engage with media outlets that provide a platform for nuanced discussions over clickbait. Let's advocate locally for education initiatives for kids and adults that encourage critical thinking and foster an appreciation of complexity. Let's support local, state, and federal politicians who resist polarizing rhetoric. I think Teddy Roosevelt put it really well in his Man in the Arena speech. The closet philosopher, the refined and cultured individual, who, from his library, tells how men ought to be governed under ideal conditions, is of no use in actual government work. And the one-sided fanatic, and still more the mob leader, And the insincere man who, to achieve power, promises what by no possibility can be performed, are not merely useless, but noxious. Okay, so Teddy admits that he is a strong individual by personal habit, inheritance, and conviction. Those are his words. However, he follows that up in his speech by saying that this does not mean that we may not, with great advantage, adopt certain of the principles professed by some given set of men who happen to call themselves socialists. To be afraid to do so would be to make a mark of weakness on our part. What is Teddy saying? He's saying that real strength is being able to see the sense in what those you disagree with are saying. It's not the ability to bury those people with nasty names faster than they can bury you. So, to wrap up, I've got to give credit to several authors who have challenged and deepened my thinking as it relates to all of this. In addition to Jonathan Haidt, I think Brene Brown is a phenomenal resource for anyone curious about vulnerability, courage, shame, and empathy. Chiamanda Ngozi Adichie, I think that's close to how you say her name, she's a Nigerian, has a TED talk called The Danger of a Single Story that is definitely worth a watch. Ibram X. Kendi's work around anti-racism is a great place to go if you want to be challenged in your thinking, especially as a white man like myself. Malcolm Gladwell is probably the best storyteller of our generation. That's my hot take for today. And his podcast Revisionist History and his books are all about challenging our intuition. He makes this claim, or I've heard him explain that For anything to be interesting, it has to challenge our intuition, and uh, I think he does a great job of creating interesting content. Similar to Gladwell is Adam Grant, with thoughtful insights into work, psychology, sociology, and his book Think Again is fantastic. I also believe everyone ought to read Daniel Kahneman's work around System 1 and 2 thinking in the book Thinking Fast and Slow. Lastly, as a Christian interested in making sense of Hebrew and Christian scriptures, I've deeply appreciated how Tim Mackey from The Bible Project and Marty Solomon from the podcast Bayma have helped me begin to appreciate the complexities of the Bible. For me to assume that I'll ever be able to fully appreciate a collection of works written to people of a different worldview, language, and place in history would be, well, foolish arrogance. But I'm finding that I actually really like not having everything figured out. Strong convictions, loosely held. A stance, not a side.